that's true Christianity to the macho excess. Where a large, allegedly. Hi there, I'm Aura Van Dank. Reporting not live from Mooresville, North Carolina. Here I am. You're watching my show about murder. Boy, has it been a week. I don't want to think about it, and neither do you, so let's not. I mean, you probably should when you have to and when it's important to, but not right now. We're talking about murder. Let's get into it. I got, like, all of my info this week off of the PBS Frontline website, like, their Frontline branch of reporting. I guess it's like a crime thing, kind of like Dateline, but it's Frontline. Very creative, very different. It's like my insanely unique title, Murder's a Drag. Nobody has ever put an apostrophe S and then a drag after anything before, and I thought that it was an opportunity I should seize, and I did, and I did it before anybody else, so that's great. Anyway, moving on quickly. Probably because this was high profile and highly publicized in Alabama, so high profile for Alabama, but also in the grand scheme of things, high profile. I'm assuming that's the reason for all of the coverage, because um, this is way more coverage than you would normally see. There were interviews, there were stories, so I'm assuming that Frontline did a story on it, so there's a lot of information. Either way it goes, thank you PBS, gotta keep funding them. Billy Jack Gaither was born in Alabama back in 1960. He was raised in a very well-kept conservative family. I mean, you know, save for them being pretty rural Alabama, they were well-kept and definitely conservative. Billy grew up in a town called Silacaga. I mean, I think it's called Silacaga. I mean, look at the spelling of that. I have no fucking idea how to say that. Silacaga, Alabama. Very small town, very conservative town, Christian morality, probably not likely to see a whole lot of diversity there, a whole lot of people of color there, a whole lot of gay people there. Um, today, I'd say they're where most modern cities were in the 90s, politically. So, take it that way. That means Billy was raised, obviously, very strictly Christian in his household. His parents brought him up on all Christian morality, including marriages between a man and a woman, the whole spiel. However, Billy did take his faith very seriously, and he was a believer all his life. His household was dictated by his father. It was a typical, like, patriarchal Christian morality setup. So it seemed to me like most of the kids would kind of be scared to go tell mom and dad something that happened or something that they did because it, it was a sin and they would be not punished by their parents but just guilted and their parents would be disappointed in them. All of the children had a big amount of respect for their parents so it doesn't seem like their parents were bad people, just misguided if you know what I mean. So the siblings kind of bonded over being scared to go to their parents about tough times in their lives because they're afraid of being judged for their sins. So they were very much like a hate the sinner, not the sin kind of family. So like, we don't hate you, just everything that you do kind of thing. Billy had a small group of friends in high school. Most of them were his family, being his siblings or extended family. Billy was definitely bullied in high school because of the feminine way that he carried himself. It didn't really fit into the macho style of Southern Alabama. His brother, Ricky Gaither, said that Billy definitely wasn't a pushover. One time there were bullies that were picking on Billy's younger brother, and he just whooped the ass. He took names, whooped ass, and handled the situation. Little brother never got bullied again. So it didn't really bother Billy so much because he stood up for himself all the time. He definitely had a lot of a backbone, so I'm sure it affected him in a lot of ways, but he stood up for himself, so he didn't let that victimize him. He really started to get into his 
personal journey of discovery and identity when he was around 17, 18. It was around that time that he started going out to Birmingham and going to the Toolbox there, which was the local gay bar and the more popular gay bar in Birmingham. He met more gay people there, was introduced to the local gay community, and started to find his place in this bigger society. He found, you know, he found the gays. He was playing a high-stakes game of hide-and-go-gay, and he won. And from hanging out in Birmingham and going to pre-game parties in his town with the really complicated name that I don't like saying, he met a bunch of friends, and those friends were far more supportive than the community that he knew, the very conservative community that he knew, and they were willing to support him fully. And he hadn't really had that, and he never really got used to that in Birmingham, having full support. Billy still also had a really supportive family, and even if their morality and their faith didn't allow for them to fully accept the life he was living, they did truly love him. That definitely came across. They just, like I said, seemed misguided by the confusing morality and that, that war you get into when you start thinking about gay versus God because of the Bible. Billy's sister, Kathy Gaither, was asked in an interview how she reacted when Billy told her that he was gay. She said, Billy, you're gay. And then he said, no, I'm not. So she responded, yeah, you are. Just deal with it. Work it out. Just don't push it on anybody. So Billy never really came out to her per se, but she just kind of knew because of conversations they'd had and the stuff that he would come to her to talk about rather than, you know, brothers. And she added that comment about like not pushing it on anybody, which I took to mean if you're visibly queer, you're gonna be in trouble around here. So don't be visibly queer, it's dangerous. And it was, cause this is like 70s era Alabama. Billy also never really came out to his parents. He always said that they knew, but they didn't know that he was gay. In that same interview, Kathy said a couple things that kind of told us why he never told his parents. Like, Billy tried several times because he loves mommy and daddy, and he had that respect for them. I had respect for them too, but I just had to be me. And that was regarding Kathy and Billy both trying to have heterosexual relationships because Kathy was gay as well. She's a lesbian woman. So they had that in common and that's kind of how she knew he was gay. And they both had that respect for their parents and that like fear to not tell them that they tried to have straight relationships that ended up not working out because that's not who they are. She also said, my daddy really is a good man, but he wanted all his boys to be boys and tough. And in his own way, Billy was tough but not to the macho excess. I imagine that was said with an Alabama accent, so like, macho excess. And then when the interviewer asked her specifically if she believed that her father still thinks that homosexuality is wrong, she said, I think so, but he's learned to accept more. He doesn't turn away. This has opened a lot of our eyes and it's a heck of a way to open them. And it's just all very sad because it's clear that Kathy and Billy are both desperate to get their parents blessing that the way that they are is okay and that, you know, they're okay to live that way and that it's it's all right. And their parents are just using that religion as a crutch and to, to deny their children love. It's really sad. It's really, really sad. You know, those are the kinds that are like, hate the sin, not the sinner. When the sin is their entire way of life, the way they love, the way they live, and you hate it, then you do hate them. You can't say that you don't hate them. It's not fair. And when you tell your kid that, that's awful. And Billy also dealt with that same kind of half-assed support from a lot of his friends in that area. For instance, Marion Hammond was the owner of the tavern, the local bar that everybody in Silicaga would go to. It was 
townspeople mostly. It wasn't anything crazy. It was just a regular local tavern. And Billy and Marion had known each other for 20 years, and Marion was quoted in her interview saying, they were actually offending my customers that were straight. And Billy Jack just went and said, do you want to go and kiss and hug and all that kind of stuff? You go to Toolbox. You come in here, you be straight. You're not ruining my bar. And that was his attitude. Like, this is your hometown bar. You want to be gay, you want to act gay, you go to Birmingham. You go to a gay bar. You come in here, you act like everybody else, or don't come. And that's how Marion felt. And I guarantee you, she's not quoting Billy correctly. Billy probably let the gay people who had come into the bar that night know, it's not safe for you to be visibly queer here. That's what they mean by keep it to yourself and don't push it on anybody. When that verbiage and word comes from a queer person, it means I can't be visibly queer here. I have to agree with all of these ignorant fucks because if I don't, I'm gonna get hurt or murdered. Miss Hammond, that's all I got to say. Miss Hammond really let her true colors slip out with her little statements in that interview because she genuinely thought that because the presence of gay men was making her uncomfortable, Billy supermaned in and kicked him out because he's just a good gay. Like, it seems like this town was all about that palatable inclusivity. So if it was palatable, if it was family-friendly PG gayness, then you were allowed to be gay. But if it was anything that they could see, hear, smell, sense, or, or get a little bit of glitter on them from your faggotry, they were over it. They wanted nothing to do with it. So it was just a lot of fruit flies in disguise. So like, they would pretend to be fruit flies, which is the nicer term for fag hag, but in reality, they are not. They hate you for who you are, but they'll hang around you because, oh my god, he picks out cool clothes for me. He thinks he has the best fashion sense, and he's just honest. And you know what, baby? The truth is, we're not honest. We're telling you things that are gonna make you look stupid. That dress does not make you look good. It's ridiculous. It's covered in sequins. You're gonna walk into that business meeting and look like a fucking idiot. And that's why we told you to buy that. I'm sorry I let you in on a secret. They're gonna arrest me. The gay council will arrest me, but I'm telling you that now. I'm assuming that's a lot of the reason why Billy never really pursued a relationship, or at least a serious relationship, because he knew that he'd never be able to bring them home and introduce his boyfriend friend to the family and really have a relationship. That wasn't a possibility for him, so he never really pursued that. So most of the men that Charles took up an interest in were in the closet, and that was just kind of the case for a lot of the gay men in the area at the time. Billy being the one that was out of the closet was kind of in the minority, well definitely in the minority, because anybody who was gay, which is obviously a lot of people, because in any town you have gay people, that's just how biology works, they were in the closet. So that's who Billy interacted with the most as far as it came to his encounters. And these encounters were usually one night stands. And those encounters would usually only happen when he was out in Birmingham because of the larger population of gay guys out there. So when two local men propositioned him, he wasn't gonna deny it. Steve Mullins and Charles Butler were two best buddies living in the same town as Billy, those two buddy buds for life were generally known around town as troublemakers. They would cause fights, provoke people, just cause problems because they were bullies. They were troublemakers, that's what they got off on. Ironic. Stephen Mullins one time went up to somebody at the tavern and Marion heard him drunkenly say, I think I'll hit you. And before being 
knocked across the bar by the man he threatened and kicked out. There were all types of drunken antics slurring around the bar and doing all this shit. And that's what eventually got him kicked out. It didn't get him banned from the bar though. He was allowed to come back. And the next time he came back, they were like, yeah, he was just making sour faces. Why don't you just get rid of him then? Don't let him back in your bar. I don't understand. 90s. There were even more rumors about Steve floating around town, however, that he had sexual relationship with men. And while it's nobody's business, it does matter regarding this case. He was definitely sleeping with men. During the trial, these relationships were actually brought up and a man named Jimmy Lynn Dean, which sounds like a fake name, but I guess isn't because it was on the transcript, and they gave him a middle name, so I don't see why they would give a fake name a middle name. But anyway, Jimmy Lynn Dean testified that he did indeed suck that dick. Not only that, but Jimmy attended a party with Steve that ended up being a very gay experience, and that was the night that ended in those aforementioned dick sucks. Steve was very fragile, and his masculinity was far, far too weak to handle this, and when challenged, often turned violent, as expressed in situations like when he sees a guy that even threatens his masculinity and just has to go up to him and punch him or start a fight. That's the kind of guy that Steven is. All that toxic masculinity up there in that little crazy man brain. On the night of February 19th, 1999, Billy was looking for plans to hang out with the friends that hated him for who he was but would never admit that. When Steven and Charles hit him up and asked if he would drive them around because they were already drunk and wanted a night of debauchery and Steven mentioned a threesome with Steven and Charles. Because, if you haven't figured it out by now, Steven and Charles had been seeing each other for months. And fucking damn right. So there's the tea. Billy and Steve had this thing going on for a while, and this particular night, Steve tells Billy that Charles wants in on their gay sex action and wants to have a threesome. Billy's not normally this kind of guy, but since Steven is the only relationship that he's ever had that lasted more than one night, and was in the same town that he lived in, he A, didn't want to lose him, and B, didn't want to cause any problems that he didn't need to cause. So Billy agreed, and their night began. Billy brought the men to a tavern, the tavern to be specific, and when he walked in, he stopped up front and said to Marion, don't worry about who's in my car, they're gonna come in in a little while, they're just not ready to come in right now. Which to me, I assume, is when these men started plotting how terrible and evil they were gonna treat Billy on this night. After a while at the tavern, the men leave the bar and start driving, and this is where the story gets a little foggy because it only comes from the murderers, so you kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt and piece it together. Steve told Billy that he and Charles were ready to go have their little fun in some secluded area because that's where gay guys went to fuck at that time. Let's be real. So they drive out to what they called the watersheds, which is this secluded area with dirt roads behind a lot of stuff, so nobody's gonna see them. When the men got to the location where everything happened, it's told that Charles went off to pee while Steve and Billy stayed together. And Steven claims that this is when Billy propositioned him. So in response, Steven grabbed Billy and cut his throat with a pocket knife. But being a pocket knife, it didn't damage any arteries or anything, so it wasn't enough to kill him. It just kind of shocked him and incapacitated him, so he got thrown to the ground. So he was still very conscious and aware of how in danger his life was. And I just can't imagine how fucking terrifying that must have been. This is the point where allegedly Charles comes back from peeing and sees this whole scene, is completely flipped out, but Steve tells him, open the trunk 
and then tells Billy to get in the trunk. So they don't even push him in the trunk, they make Billy get up and get in the trunk himself. Next, they drove him to a gas station where Stephen got out and bought a gallon of kerosene, a box of matches, an axe handle, and two tires. Steve then drove to Peckerwood Creek Road, where he got out with his murder kit and Billy. Steve then put both tires on the ground and doused them in kerosene and started a fire with those. And then he told Charles to help him hold Billy while he beat him brutally with the axe handle for God knows how long. But Billy was beaten beyond recognition. Now that Billy was unconscious, Charles and Stephen picked up his body and threw it on top of the burning tires. They then waited there morbidly while they watched the body burn to make sure that he was dead. And then they left the scene and drove straight to a bar to get drunk and party. When Billy didn't return home, his siblings and his parents and friends were all concerned because it was very unlike Billy to not return home. So they started calling everybody that they knew to be in connection with Billy, being the bar and his family. So that was really, there wasn't really a whole lot of suspects here unless it was something completely random. And they weren't even sure that Billy was dead. But they knew where they lived and they knew that a lot of people knew that Billy was gay. So it was a fear that they'd always had. And when he finally did go missing, they knew what had happened. It was almost like they'd been waiting for it to happen. Later that day, on November 19th, the afternoon after Billy was murdered, his body was found where the men had left it on the smoldering pile of tire. The men were quickly found because Steve had immediately told his father what happened. He said that he'd killed somebody and then was quoted saying he kicked a queer's ass. Steve already had warrants in that county, so he was easily picked up and arrested. And then shortly after that, obviously, he ratted out Charles. And then Charles was arrested and brought in. At the trial, around March of 2000, Steve's own father testified against him about the night that Steve came home and told him, and he quoted his son saying that he'd kicked a queer's ass, and was one of the main reasons that his son was put away and sentenced to life in prison, as well as Charles. They both got the same sentence and are both serving life in prison. Well, not Steve. Incidentally, Steve was killed in prison last year, in 2019, in March, and after 30 plus years of him suffering and getting his name dragged through the mud and having an altogether awful time in prison, he was stabbed and murdered. Both Charles and Steve were labeled wannabe skinheads by even law officials, so they really were prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, and obviously that is because of the high profile uh, nature of the case, but nonetheless, it's justice for Billy and his family, so can't complain too much about that. I've heard Billy's name mentioned in articles and on podcasts. I've seen pictures of him on Days of Remembrance, but I've never really looked into his story. And learning more about who he was was a real treat because Billy had a lot of self-doubt and was never comfortable with who he was and was never able to live a comfortable life being who he was. And I think that that resonates with a lot of queer people because we, well, most of us or some of us eventually do get to live that life comfortably. And to know that somebody never did is really heartbreaking. This whole case is just heartbreaking. Billy's definitely fondly remembered among his community where he grew up and lived, and now he will be fondly remembered by me and everybody who watches this episode. And on that note, it's time for transformations. And that's the finished look for this week. Very blue, Venetian, if you will, yeah. I like it. I like my colored nose contour. I haven't done that in a while. So it feels good to be back to that. It must mean things are going right. If there's a way for me to make this show better, then I've already done it, so. 
<laughs> Womanly. Yeah, this week has been quite crazy. Uh, election craziness, but my makeup and this country have something very similar going on that I did not expect. And on that note, I love you guys. My loyal fans, I love you. I don't know how many of there, there do, how many you are, but I know I love you. And that's real, real true love. And you're not gonna get that anywhere else, so don't you dare ever leave me. I've also decided that I wanna move to California within the next couple of months um, to go live with my boyfriend. And that's stressful. So I'm trying to finish up school and then go out there. I can't take the South anymore. Some people were born here and like raised here, so I feel like that's a little different. But I was born in New York and raised in New York for like 11 years before we moved down here. So moving down here was a culture shock. Then I came out of the closet. I'm gay. I just, you know, you guys are my friends. I can talk to you guys about this. Love that you're always there for me. Just listening. You never say too much, you know? It's great. You guys are really great. I love you. Have a lovely weekend and a lovely week. I'll see you back here next Friday. It's Friday now, by the way, if you hadn't noticed, but see you next week. Mm -hmm.